It is so good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Relevant Faith Church. My name is Mike Womer. I'm the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you are joining us. So this morning, we are actually jumping into a series that I am going to actually continue through the summer, through the rest of what we have left of our summer. Um, it's, it's crazy to me that there's only about a month and a half left of summer as we know it. School's coming for all of our young people and for parents, everybody who would shout amen, let's go. Get them back out into, into, the, into school. But that's coming in not that far away. So uh, summer is um, right in its, t- just past the midpoint, and it's, uh, it's been a good summer. Um, so this new series that I'm going to start today and continue for the next eight weeks is called The Way I See It. So yes, you guys are getting eight weeks of Pastor Mike's opinion on everything. No, I'm just playing. I don't preach my opinion on anything. I share, and if I do, I preface it that it is my opinion. But, um, but no, we are talking about, we're going to talk about a lot of different topics over the next eight weeks and really relate to how people see it. So as most of you know, it's no secret that I have been an avid Starbucks drinker, and I have been an avid Starbucks drinker since 2003. That's when I had my very first triple grande caramel macchiato. And this morning, I think I've had my 1.3 millionth triple grande caramel macchiato. I don't know. I've been doing it for 15 years. Same drink. Very rarely going away from that. But as you know, I'm an avid Starbucks drinker. I, don't, I, I, I mainline caffeine. Not as much as I used to. I, I've cut down and cut back quite a bit. But, um, but I remember back probably around 2006 or so, maybe 2007, 8, somewhere in there for several years, there used to be a phrase on the Starbucks coffee cup. And if anybody goes back that long in their Starbucks journey like I with me, there used to be a phrase that says, the way I see it. And it used to be expressions and words and things written by, by prominent um, musicians, artists, authors, um, philosophers, regular, average, everyday people. They used to write these little blurbs on there the way I see it. And it would just simply be, um, their thoughts and their expressions. Some of them were extremely empowering and wonderful. Others of them were laced with opinionation and even kind of rhetoric. And so and some of them were really good. Some of them were absolutely pointless. Some of them I felt dumber for having read. Some of them I was super encouraged by having read. And so it was just this thing, it's the way I see it. If you, wanna, if you take a time to Google, Google that idea, you'll see Starbucks cups and you'll see some thoughts on there. And so when I saw that, and I, when I thought, when God brought this, in, this thought into my heart for this series, and I remembered that cup, I remembered this is, this, is, this is really good. So I began to research some ideas on the way I see it. And not necessarily the way I see, I personally see it, but I feel like the way collectively society sees certain topics. And so today the topic is simply God, the way I see it. And so before we jump into that, I want you to watch this video that I have found. I found a street interview video. I love watching those because people are actually honest and open about the way they see certain topics. So I found one based on God. So turn your eyes to the screen for just a minute and check out this quick video. Hey guys, this is Rodrigo for the Martlets, and we're here at UVic on another beautiful day. And um, we're here to ask the students what they think of God. Who is God? What is God? 
We're looking for some philosophical thoughts here. So we'll see what they think. Man, I need to panic like a hole in the head. Well, the tracks, we're making it fat. They're captivating the raps. Hmm. I wasn't expecting this question. Uh, I guess God is what you kind of make of it. Um, I don't particularly... I guess I could call myself agnostic. Uh, so... I don't doubt that there's a higher power. There's no way that I can disprove that. But um, I think it's kind of silly to be atheist and just completely reject that notion. <laughs> um, honestly, an omnipotent creator that may or may not exist, but probably my personal belief is something that inhabits everything that joins everything together. More like the universe. They're somewhat synonymous in my mind. So are you God? I, I am a part of God. <laughs> um, I make up a part of what may be God. I think God is whatever anybody wants him to be, he or she or it. Um, I think it's sort of created everything, but I don't want to label it as a proper religious figure, if that makes sense. It's a spiritual figure, not so much religious. I believe that God, God created everything. And no matter what happens, even against your willing or something bad happens, something bad happens to you, it would be for your own benefit. It would be for a good reason could be having an accident but if you haven't had that accident you might have you know get shot or something or so everything happens for a reason and I believe that God created everything um, I, I put science first but I do think that there's a place for uh, spirituality that is uh, in contradiction to science So just a few thoughts of what some college students think God is. Maybe you found a little bit of things that you can identify in there. Maybe you uh, find some interesting ideas and thoughts. And maybe you have your own thoughts of who or what God is. And so today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this idea of God. So what I've come to realize, in America, we value our viewpoint way too much. We suggest that our viewpoint is the only viewpoint. And I don't say that as Christians, I say that as Americans. Because, and because we value our viewpoint so much, we think we actually have the freedom and the liberty to decide on our own what truth actually is. In going through these videos, I watched probably about 30 of them. And so the bulk of them were four, five, six, seven minutes long. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to share six or seven minutes of my preaching with a video. And so I didn't want to share a five-minute video because it got pretty redundant. But a lot of what they said, and it was real funny because one person would say, I'm agnostic. Another person would say, I'm atheist. And then another third person would say, I think both of them are stupid. He says, because being agnostic, this is their words, not mine. Being agnostic suggests that I just can't make up my mind. So I'll just give myself a word that allows me to be wishy-washy. I was like, that's kind of 
raw, and he wasn't even a believer who said it. He says, I don't know what I think, and I just leave it at that. <laughs> and I was like, okay. But um, there's so many thoughts. You heard one of them say, God can just be whatever you want him to be, or her, or it, or whatever you need him to be, or whatever the case may be. So there are a lot of thoughts on God. And you're going to see some of these videos I've uh, stockpiled a few of them. You're going to see some of these videos over the next several weeks in the different topics that we're talking on. And so, so this one in particular um, was interesting. I think the thing is we love to ask the question, why? And when we begin to ask the question, why, we begin to think that there is some grand old plan that God up there in his infinite master of puppets way is orchestrating everything in my life and we have to know why? And it's interesting because he actually addressed, God actually addressed that. And um, not, this is not the, the part of my message that I'm going to preach this morning. I might get to this another time. But he actually addressed the question why in scripture. In the book of Daniel, he actually said, it is not for you to know why I do the things that I do. You have no place to even ask me why. That being said, even as believers, we ask God why all the time. Because it comes out of this place where we have to have this understanding in order to believe something. This is where scientists and agnostics have some of their trouble. They can't comprehend God because they cannot see God and they cannot hear God. They cannot touch God. They cannot taste God. They can't do these things in the traditional normal sense. So therefore, there must not be a God. But then their confusion brings them to the place as well. But there's all of this around. How could that have just magically existed. So there maybe there is a God. You see the wishy-washy, right? They're back and forth. They're struggling. And most of it is built on their thoughts. The problem with all of this is oftentimes the way we see it is quite wrong. You know, I, I can stand before you now. Couldn't have done this 15 years ago, but I can stand before you now and suggest maybe not everything I think is right. Maybe not everything that I say is right, or maybe not everything that I actually believe is right. I can actually say that. Also, I mean, in the context of Scripture, I will suggest that everything that the Bible says is absolute truth, because that's what I believe about the Word of God. But sometimes my bent on Scripture, or my twist on Scripture, or my thought process through Scripture, or even just in life, may not necessarily be right. So in looking at this, I'm, I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you. It's going to kind of be the basis of our entire, uh, our entire series. And the reason why I want to read it, I'm going to read it to you in two versions because it sounds very, very different in, in, in the different versions. And I was actually not confused, but really thinking to myself, wow, I really want to get down to and understand why it looks like this in so many different ways. So here's what the Bible says. In Proverbs chapter 4, you don't have to put this on the screen yet, Nicholas, because I'm reading the other version first. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23, the Bible says, and this is a very popular passage of scripture that we have heard in so many different ways and contexts, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. That's the New Living Translation version of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And so when we think about that process, that idea of guarding your heart, we're thinking about this organ in, it, that sits in our chest. And we're thinking about its pain. We're thinking about the way it thinks, the way, the way it believes, the way it feels. The challenge is that's not what the actual writer of Proverbs was speaking of when he wrote it. Matter of fact, there's another version called the Good News Version of the Bible, who I've read through some of it. I don't 
preach from it. I'm not very familiar with it. But with the stuff that I've read, it's, it's a pretty decent translation. It has some pretty good stuff in there in the way that it translates it from the original language. And this is what it says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. This will be up on the screen. It says, be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. It's interesting because that sounds very, where's that at? Put that back up on the screen. Is that not on there? There it is. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. That's a very different sounding verse than guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. So now you could kind of make an argument for your life is shaped by your thoughts determining the course of your life. That's, that's about the same language. But the very first part, he says, he says, guard your heart above all else. Be careful how you think. So that caused me to start to study and look into scripture. And I, I really want to encourage you to take time to get into the word for what it actually says, not what your translation of the Bible says. Some people will hang their hat on the King James versions and suggest all other versions are petty and outside of, of, of norm, and that's the way it's meant. No, actually, the reality is that was, a, that was a version of the Bible commissioned by a very greedy king to be written for him. That's what it was born in. Not to suggest that it's not good, because it is, but that's how it was born. So let's not make a version of the Bible the actual Word of God. Let's go back to the original because last I checked, King James was not a Greek nor a Hebrew. So that's why he had it commissioned to be written in his language. So if we go actually back to the original language, the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, depending on what was written, who wrote it, and when they wrote it, you'll actually get some understanding. So I did that with this passage of scripture and with this phrase, guard your heart. And so this passage is translated in so many different translations as the word heart. And it's not necessarily that it's an incorrect translation, but a more full translation would be the thoughts of the heart. Matter of fact, this word for heart in the Hebrew was, is, the, is the Hebrew word labe, or some may pronounce it lab, but L-E-B is its spelling. And everywhere it is used, it is actually referencing the thoughts of the heart, not the emotion of the heart, See, in, in, in English, we struggle to separate the two. We think heart and we think feel. We think heart and we think emotion. We think heart and we think the thing that gets broken. We don't suggest that the, the heart has its own thoughts. So, but it's an interesting thing, and I'm not going to get all scientific on you, but the Bible even says that out of the abundance of the what, the heart, the what, the mouth speaks. So there's got to be something going on in the heart that causes the mouth to speak, yet scientifically it's proven that the mouth speaks because the thought is then force formulated where? In the brain. So there's a direct connection between my heart, my brain, and my mouth when it comes to thinking. So I hope that's not too weighty for a Sunday morning for you, but the reality is the heart has thoughts that are then formulated in such a way that they manifest themselves in words spoken and brain thinking. And that's part of where the problem comes because the Bible also says the heart is what? Deceitful and wicked. So here's the, here's the reality. If you would take that and put it in your own mentality, who, if you could think of somebody in, not in your life, please don't do that, but in history that is dead and gone now, don't know, nobody living, all right? Somebody in, that you've read about, dead and gone, very important. Think about dead and gone, somebody who you would, would say would, be, would have been wicked in their life, dead and gone. 
There's a lot of people you can come up with, a lot of names in history that you could come up with. So by listening to your heart as being your authority would be the same thing as listening to maybe Genghis Khan and say, hey, live your life the way he suggests, or maybe listening to someone like Adolf Hitler and living your life the way he suggests. Ooh, nobody wants to do that, right? But that's our, that's our thought process of what deceitful and wicked looks. Now that might sound like a stretch, and maybe it is. But the reality is the Bible does declare that the heart is deceitful and wicked. That, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the heart actually forms thoughts. And so back to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it's those thoughts of the heart that shape the thoughts in our mind and ultimately determine the course of our lives. So what happens is, is, is we suffer a heartbreak of some kind. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one or a broken relationship, or maybe God forbid you've lost a child at some point in time in your journey of life. We, we have this pain and this heartbreak that then formulates a thought that will determine the course of our life quite often. And so the Bible's telling us to be careful how you think, guard your heart above all those things, guard the heart, the thoughts of your heart, because this is going to shape your life. And when it comes to God, this is, if there's ever an area where opinions are dramatic from one end to the other, it's in the idea of God. And it's difficult to ask that question of someone without that the person taking it to a religious place. I remember asking this question once, what do you think of God? I was on fire, I'm still on fire for God, it's just a little bit different, I have a, a lot more uh, wisdom with my fire for God now. I used to not have so much wisdom and I used to just go to people and say, hey, do you know Jesus? No, okay, great, you're burning in hell, let's get that fixed. That's not a really good witness, but that's kind of how it was. So I remember asking someone very early in my, my walk with Christ, do you, tell me what you think about God. And their first response, I hate religion. I was like, all right, cool. That's not really what I was asking you. Tell me what you think about God. So people have a hard time separating the idea of religion from God. I'm not a big fan of religion either. Because religion, actually, when you look through it, is a man-made, man-created thing. I think some religious organizations can be super beneficial because of the resources they provide. But at the end of the day, no one religion is right. No one religion has it all figured out. Don't tell that to those folks. You start a fight. I have conversations with some of them that they, uh-uh. That whole Holy Spirit thing, you stupid. That's what I hear sometimes. But there's a lot of ideas about God, about the church, about Jesus, about heaven, about, about race, and about society, about justice. There's all these thoughts, and we're going to actually tackle them over the next eight weeks. So today, let's talk about... God. Because people have shaped their thoughts and their ideas over the years based on what they think. 2 Timothy chapter 4, chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 addresses that for us when it says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Put that back up there on the screen. The last verse. Last part of the verse. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. I would suggest, church, that we are in that season of life where people reject 
sound and wholesome teaching. Follow their own desires. Look for teachers who will tell them whatever. Come on. That's what, and if you're on this list, I'm sorry, but that's what church hoppers do. Let me come over here to this church. Man, I think I like the worship. This is really good. The preacher, man, he's kind of funny. He's good looking. You must have come to this church. Um, No, I'm joking. You definitely didn't come here. Um, But you have these thoughts, and then he starts to preach. Uh, That contradicts how I live my life, so that's not okay. I need to go to another church. And they do this over and over and over, looking for someone who will speak to their itching ears, the Bible calls it. Meaning, who's going to speak what I need, what I want to hear, to make me feel good about where I am. So let me suggest, if you ever walk into this place, and you walk out and your toes are not bruised a little bit, then I have not done my job. That's the way I look at it. I don't, I don't, I don't try to offend anyone. I'm pretty good at it but I don't try to do it. But when I preach the gospel, the Bible's very clear. It's the word of God that offends. Nobody wants to hear, be honest with you. Nobody in there, and, and, and you're at Relevant Faith Church, and so one of the things that we talk about quite often here is diversity, and I'm not gonna jump into that because we're gonna talk a whole service, Sunday service about that in a couple of weeks. But we have, talk about this idea. You can't live in your lily white world and think that all things are good for all people. That's not how it works. That's not gospel truth. That's not actual truth. But that's the kind of things that we adopt. These mentalities that suggest the way I think or the way I view my world and my life is truth. And then we look for someone who's going to confirm that. So we're going to bust some of these myths today. All right? I often have people say, oh, I don't believe in God. Or, and I ask them, describe what kind of God you don't believe in. And oftentimes, I, I, I will then incite a conversation that brings out a lot of pain. They were judged in a church. They walked into a church and someone condemned them or someone, whatever the reason might be. And so we're going to deal with some truth. It's not always popular to seek truth, but it's always, it's always beneficial. It contradicts popular opinion. It will contradict conventional wisdom, but it's important to know. Because the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 32, that those who know the truth... It will be what sets them free. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, that's the goal of this series. So we're going to expose some lies that I believe we've believed over the years and hopefully be set free by this truth. So let's get rolling. The myths about God. We're going to look at the way people see God because the way you see God affects the way you see yourself. First, let's understand that. The way you see God absolutely affects the way you see yourself. If you see God as a man sitting on a, hand, on a throne with an iron scepter and his big giant fist way up in the air just waiting to pound you over your head, then you're going to walk around scared and broken all your life because you're waiting for the hammer to drop on your head. See, I am oblivious to the hammer dropping on my head, and then when it hits me, I'm like, oh, okay, let me get my life back together. It's kind of like an inside joke that we have at Chick-fil-A whenever we make a mistake. It's like, come on now, get your life together. That's what we do among, among the leaders, and I get it more than anybody else. Come on, Mike, get your life together. I said, I'm working on it every day. But here's what you have to see. You have to understand this about God and you first. You are made in God's image. Okay, understand that. Understand that you are made in God's image. And if you are made in God's image and you look at yourself in any other way, you are suggesting that God's image 
isn't anything other than perfect. Is anything other than flawed. You are absolutely perfect. You're welcome. Not necessarily in your actions, but in your creation because you were created in the image of God and God does have, has, has no flaws. So you and your creation are perfect. Don't walk around saying, my pastor said I'm perfect. So I don't have to listen to anything you say. Yeah, that's not what I mean. But if you are made in God's image and you have this, and you have this warped image of God, you're going to have an equally distorted image of yourself. So it's so important to understand how God views you because that's how you're going to view yourself. So here's four myths that we're going to deal with today. Let me check my time. Perfect. Four myths we're going to deal, to deal with today that I believe are very common. The very first one, you have a note sheet. And feel free to follow along. There's some blanks that you can fill in. It's, uh, it's good to keep us on track, keep you on track, but more likely keep me on track. If I skip any, just let me know because I have a tendency from time to time to miss one. So grab me after church and say, what was that vote? What was that, that blank? I missed it or you missed it. Either way. So here's the very first one. The very first myth that we're going to bust is the idea that God is unreasonable. God is unreasonable. This is kind of how it looks and this is kind of might be how it sounds. I'm going to pull this out a little bit so I can... This is how it might sound. Well, God places so many demands on my life. God is hard to please. It's, he's too strict. All he wants is me to be this good, boring, no fun person. I can't go to the club because that's, no, that's fun, and God doesn't like fun. We always have this, when we think of a religious person, we have this idea of this monk in our, in our head. Well, that must be what a religious person looks like. Well, I'm no monk. I'm no religious person. He sits up in heaven with this scowl on his face, looking down in disappointment on all of us. He's waiting for someone to have a moment of fun so he can say, stop, no fun. That's the image that so many people have of God, which is why it's so difficult for them to actually serve God. Because the reality is, if I believed that about God, I would not serve God. Because that would not be fun. That would not be life-giving. And the God that I serve is a God who gives life. Matter of fact, he gives it abundantly. He doesn't just give me a little bit of life. He gives me abundant life. We preached that last week. Nate and I preached that last week. So this is not a new myth. This is, in fact, his record, first recorded of the words of the devil in, by, in the Bible itself. Back in the book of Genesis, when God had created the Garden of Eden, he created paradise. The word paradise literally means filled with pleasure. You're telling me a God, you think God is not about fun when he created a place that literally means filled with pleasure? That it's all for you. It's complete and it's total. And you can do, and you can do because so here's what the devil did. He took the words of God. And he twisted them to suggest something that's not true. Paradise means it's filled with pleasure. You could do anything you want to do. I mean, after all, God did create it and he gave it to you. So you can do whatever you want with it. And so God says, you can have all of this. The only thing I don't want you to do is don't eat from this one tree. 
There's a million trees in this garden. Everything is pleasurable. Everything is beautiful. Everything is perfect. Just kind of leave this one alone. And of course, what do we do? We go to the one that we are told to leave alone. Anybody have children in here? You ever tell your kids, don't touch this? What's the first thing they do? Touch that. Where do you think that comes from? It comes from the very beginning of time. So why did he have, an, and here's the thing, why did he even have one thing that was off limits? Because, he, and here's the, here's the reality, the answer to that question in my opinion now, okay, I'm, I'm prefacing this as my opinion, is because I believe he wanted to provide man with a choice. God wants you to love him because you choose to love him. He does not want you to love him because there's no other choice. Now some of y'all men in here, you got married and then you really didn't have any other options. And so you just ended up where you ended up. You ended up with a beautiful woman, and she had no options. Just thank God for his grace and move on. I'm joking. I'm playing with you. I like to have fun, folks. If you don't like that, you're in the wrong place. He wants you to love him because you choose to love him, not because there's no other choice. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, But the Lord God warned them, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. This is where Satan comes along. He comes along. He wants you to think that God is hard. He wants you to think that he's unreasonable. So in verse number three, or chapter three, verse number one, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Look what he did. He sowed a seed of doubt into their mind or, un, uh, or speaking the fact that God must be unreasonable. Did he really say that? How many of you have had a conversation with somebody and said, did he really just say that? That's kind of the devil. Did he really just say that? no. It's a shift. You see what he's done? He's trying to make God appear strict. He's trying to make God appear unreasonable. Why? Because you can't have one thing? Ooh, that right there will preach all by itself in this world today. Because you can't have the one thing God's unreasonable. Because you can't do the one thing God's unreasonable. This still happens today. So many people are turned off from God. And honestly, let's be honest. A lot of that stems from you and me. We're the ones that turn people off from God, not God. The Bible, he's very clear. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. But when you begin to lift up your idea of who God is, you repel all men away from him. Let's, let's just be honest. Somebody who walks into this place, maybe a homeless person walks into this place. The way you look at that person, because that person may not have bathed this morning, turns them from God. Maybe the homosexual walks into this place searching for God, wanting to connect with God, but because they're gay, you're suggesting they cannot, or there's some kind of abomination, or that person is, they're, they're written off, and then they're pushed even further from God than they may already be. We do that. Or because the pastor wears a hat when he preaches, that's irreverent. You can't do that. So that turns, so, we, we, so because people say these things, they push people away from God and suggest the idea of the fact that I got to get my life together before I can meet God is derived from people, from the way we treat people. Don't put the onus on someone else. Put it on people because we do that. You know, we look at God and we think that he's this, this iron fist waiting to pound the fun out of us. It's the same thing if you have kids. Your kids get on a, on a, on a bicycle and you say, hey, wear your helmet. And what do they say? You never want me to have any fun. Like, no, I don't want your brain splattered all over the road, right? 
we have this distorted view, and a distorted view of God ruins the relationship with God. Here's the actual truth. God is not unreasonable. God is actually compassionate. He is compassionate. God is for you, and he is not against you. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, the Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation." The very fact that you're still breathing today is his compassion. The very fact that you woke up, the Bible says, while we are yet still sinners, Christ died from us. Knowing that we are still failures, we are still walking around trying to figure out life and making mistakes every day. And because he still loves you, you still have breath in your lungs and he hasn't. And for the unbeliever walking around, there is a reason why he's still walking around. Because he needs Jesus. It's compassion. John chapter 3 verse 16 was born out of compassion for God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His desire is that none die without him. It's his compassion is the reason why Christ is still seated at the right hand of the Father and not returned. He's not unreasonable. He's compassionate. He gave us things to enjoy, but he puts restrictions on things to protect us. Because if you misuse them, you get hurt. For instance, let's look at water. Water is a wonderful thing. It hydrates your body. It cleans your clothes. It washes your body. It's great to swim in. It's nice to go diving and surfing in or whatever you like to do with water. However, if you misuse water, you can die. You can drown. It's, it's equally as dangerous as it is pleasurable. Look at fire. Fire is wonderful. It purifies things. It cooks food. Right? It, it, it keeps us warm. does all these things. You get a little too close to the fire, you're going to get burned. Anybody ever lit a grill? Burn your eyebrows off? I did it. I burn hair off my knuckles every time I light the grill. I, I like squirting it and throwing a match on it. It's my favorite thing about it. But it's dangerous. Here's another one especially in our, in, our, in our society. And it's, and it's not even, people are like, oh, it's, it's worse today than ever before. The reality is, no, there's just more of it today than ever before because there's more people on earth. If you look in the Bible, this was a bigger problem back then as it is today. And it's this three-letter word called S-E-X. Oh, yes, I said sex in church. Nobody wants to preach it. The reality is, it is a beautiful, wonderful, amazing, fantastic thing. Yeah, I know I just made you uncomfortable sitting next to your child. But it's that way in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it was created for. That's when it's beautiful. When it's used for anything else, oh boy, all kinds of crazy things happen. All kinds of craziness. We're not going to preach that today. But all kinds of craziness comes from sex when it's not used the biblical way. He's not restrictive. He wants you to enjoy your life. Here's the right view of God. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 says, The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. His love never ends and his mercy never ceases. You want to have a view of God? That's the right one. Anytime God says no to me, it's I look at it because he loves me. You know how many stupid things I come up with? When he says no, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, you saved me some heartache. Once in a while, I do it anyway, and pain. Myth number two. We believe that God is unreliable. We believe that God is unreliable. This one says that you can't really trust God. 
that he'll lie to you or he'll let you down. He'll not fulfill his promises because he's, he's fickle. He changes his mind. God doesn't do things the right way. When the reality is, all of that can be shaped in saying, well, God doesn't do things my way. So because he doesn't do things my way, he's unreliable. Tough statement to make, but it's what we make in the way we act. No one's ever going to actually say, well, somebody will. But no, most people aren't going to actually say, well, God doesn't do things my way, so he's unreliable. Because nobody's, most people aren't that crazy. But some are. There are a few out there that are. And so this viewpoint again, is nothing new. It's as old again as the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. This is Eve. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat from. So here, the devil comes and says, did he really just say that? Did he really say you can't eat from this? And Eve's like, well, wait a minute. Women are mindful and level-headed. They're smart most of the time, more times than men, that's for certain says it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat from. She's like, no, I can have all of this. I just can't have this one. It's men that want what they can't have more often than women, if we're just going to be honest. But it's just this one. God said you must not eat from it or even touch it. If you do, then you will die. So that Eve's thought process is good. It's like, no, I can have all of this. I just can't have this one. That's okay. I can live with that. And then Satan says, you won't die. That's ridiculous. You won't die. This is what he says in verse 5. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So what does the devil do? The devil then tempts her with being like God. And after all, we all want to be like God. Being a Christian is said to be like Christ. And if we're like Christ, then we're like God. And if we're like God, then we are going to be good. So he begins to twist the truth to bring this perversion of truth into our minds and into our lives. His main goal is to get us to second guess God, to put doubt in our minds about the way God does things. Anybody in this place ever doubt God before? Raise your hand if you doubted God. And if you don't raise your hand, you're just a liar. I'm raising my hand. I doubt him quite often if I'm going to be honest. There's some things happen. I'm like, God, I don't really understand why that happened. Am I really supposed to be preaching? Let me say, I said this once, ready? This might be too transparent. Just understand and know that I absolutely, absolutely, with 100% of all that I am, love you. But I have said, God, should I really be preaching? I don't even know if I like people. Am I, am, I, am I the only one just willing to be honest? How many of y'all love people all the time? If you do, then I need counseling with you to figure out how to be that way. Because the reality is it doesn't always work. But that doesn't mean that God has not positioned me the way he's positioned me. It just means that I'm getting in my own way a little bit. So he says, you're not going to die. You're going to know good from evil. And we all want to know what good from evil is. It helps us to make better choices. Drop the doubt in the minds. And a lot of people who have looked over the Bible and think God is wrong. That God is this unpredictable, moody God. That he is this seven-year-old kid with a magnifying glass burning ants. That's the way we view God. That's the, and it's unhealthy. But here's the truth. God is not actually unreliable in any way, shape, or form. God is consistent. If you look through scripture, God is consistent. We don't see it clearly now, but the word is actually true. 
We have limited information. We have limited information. We are making life-altering decisions with limited information. How many does that sound like a good thing to do? You have limited information because we consult everything but God, including our own hearts. We listen to songs that say, well, if it makes you feel good, then it can't be wrong. We have this idea that I am the end all. I don't consult scripture or the Bible or even wise counsel. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And maybe even that has brought you to doubt God. I mean, over the years, some have even changed the doctrine of the Bible to fit the way they see it. They've changed the doctrine of sin to advocate for their sinful lives when it was unnecessary because the Bible already told them that they're going to fail every day. Each day we all fall short of the glory of God. So they didn't need to change it, but they did to to fit their lifestyle. Or some of it changed scripture so they could lay name and claim to something that they want. That's too much good preaching right there. Oh, that's my house. I'm declaring that's my house. Nah, last I checked, that's probably that person's house. Get your own house. Let God provide for you what you need and what you desire. But that's what we do. I'm I'm claiming this car. I'm claiming this job. I'm claiming this bank account. I'm claiming this house. I'm claiming, claiming, claiming. That's not Bible. That's a twisting of doctrine so that it fits the way that I see it. Or how about money? Oh, yeah. Money. Well, it's my money. I'm going to keep my money. It's after all, it's my money. No, I think your money is just on loan to you from God. Because he owns everything, the Bible says. He owns a cattle on a thousand hill. He owns everything. He's entrusting you. And what has he said? He wants you to be a good steward of what he's given you. There's all kinds of teaching in scripture about stewarding what he's given you. Not just your money, but your time, your talent. If you're not serving the kingdom of God, you're missing it. If you're not giving to the kingdom of God, you're missing it. If you're not devoting yourself to the kingdom of God, you're missing it. These are all truths that people have changed to fit the way they see it. God is one thing. He does not change. He is consistent. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, God will never go back on his promises. That everything he said is yes and amen. If he's promised it, then you can pretty much bank on it. So we look at this idea and, and I, here's what I believe is going to take place. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to see that he knew exactly what he was doing all along the road. And hopefully you're all there with us. Hopefully I'm there with you. I'm getting it right. It's kind of like our kids. They don't want us there. We don't want them to have any fun right now. And that's the way they look at it. But let me tell you something. I don't know about you, but especially over the last 10 years of my life, how many times I said, wow, mom, you were right. Wow, Dad, you were right. I realized my parents are a whole lot wiser than I ever gave them credit for. That's, that's the idea. I think that's what's going to happen with God. And I, it's already happened in a lot of ways in my life. I can already look at my life and see things that didn't happen though, the way I wanted them to happen and then stand back and say, oh, God, you had me in mind in this. You, I think I really avoided some serious issues because I didn't get my way. 
His love is completely consistent no matter what. He said in Malachi, I am God and I do not change. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you were created in his image and loved yesterday, you are today and you will be forever. That's the God that you serve. That's the God that I, my desire is that you serve. Myth number three. The myth is that God is unconcerned. God doesn't concern himself with me. One of the videos that I watched, they asked that question uh, about, about God, and they said, what do you, what do you think, how do you think God thinks of you? And one woman said, I don't think he thinks of me at all. I mean, come on, he's God. Why would he even bother thinking of me? But this is what he says in Psalm 22, verse 2. Every day I call to you. This is, this is the psalmist to God. And this is, where we, this is where we begin to form our opinion because we only read parts. We don't read holes. Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Anybody ever have that feeling before? Anybody ever have that feeling where you're reaching out to God and you say, every day I call to you, God, and I have no answer. Every day I reach out to you, I cry out to you, and I have no relief. We have that feeling. The psalmist had that same, David had that same exact feeling. But again, if you leave it right there, that's all you get. And we have this idea that God just must not be concerned with me because after all, I'm reaching out to him and I have no relief. I have no answer. I have nothing. We form viewpoints on the way we see it. But see, here's the thing. The psalmist takes it to another place and he says the first thing he does is acknowledge who God is in verse number three. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. He says, God, I, I reach out to you. I cry out to you. I'm not getting anything back. Yet you are holy and throned in the places of Israel. When the word says he's enthroned on the places of Israel, meaning he is sitting as judge on the, on the places in Israel, but more importantly, that he is a sovereign God in control of everything. This is an acknowledgement of David saying, I'm not feeling it, but I know you're holy. I'm not getting any relief but I know you're in charge and I know that you are moving and you are working. See the thought process? If we stop with verse number, if we stop with verse number two, we're gonna mess up and we're gonna leave ourselves in a position where we think God is very unconcerned with who we are or what we're going through. And then if you continue in Psalm chapter 22 and look at the last half of the chapter, chapter verses 23 through 31, he says, Praise the Lord, all who you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. That's you and me he's talking to. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Verse 28, the royal power belongs to the Lord. You see what he's doing? He is praising God. He is deflecting all of the fact that he's fearful and he's anguished and he's in pain. He's deflecting it back to God and suggesting let the rich of the earth feast and worship bow before him all who are mortal, all, the, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children, verse 30, will also serve him. He's not even concerned with himself any longer. He's not even concerned with his own pain and anguish any longer. Now he's projecting it onto his children. My children will serve you, God. 
Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. Do you see what he's done? He's taken it from the fact that he's experiencing no relief and no answer and suggesting that God is still on the throne and he is still sovereign. Can I tell you this morning, church, whether you have felt the answer that you're expecting to feel, he is still sovereign. He is still on the throne and he is still working on your behalf. Every day of your life, whether you feel it or not, whether you feel it or not, Understand that God is not turned off by your past. He is not turned off by your baggage. He's actually used used people with more baggage than you. He has used people in mighty ways that have more baggage than you. If you're sitting in this place and you murdered someone, okay, you are now qualified to lead an entire nation out of slavery. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense, but that's what Moses did. Moses killed a man who fled for his life, and God said, now go free my people from slavery. That don't make any sense. David, a man after God's own heart, filled and consumed with lust after a woman that he saw on a roof and says, I am going to make her mine. Her husband is off at war. There's nobody to guard this chick. I got it. Let me bring her in. He brings her in. Takes advantage of her because he's the king and she's not. Has what he wants. She becomes pregnant. Now David's like, oh, crap. What did I do? I got another man's wife pregnant. That's okay. I can fix it. He calls the husband in from the battlefield. Go, enjoy your wife. Because there were no DNA tests back then. No Jerry Springer. No Maury Povich. Right? Go enjoy your wife. Now when she has a baby and you're out on the field, it's going to be your kid and now I'm in the clear. Hello, we are talking about the man who brought about the lineage of Jesus Christ. And when that plan didn't work, he said, okay, it's not working. So let me just send him to the front line of the battlefield. He can die. This is the man whose lineage would produce the savior of the world. If y'all ain't done that, You see what I'm saying? God has used people with way more baggage than you have. He is not unconcerned. Matter of fact, he's overwhelmingly concerned with you. Here's the truth. God is actually caring. I could keep on going about the messed up folks that God used in the Bible. Just read them. They're a hot mess. Paul killed Christians. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Samson couldn't stop laying with a woman. He keeps on going and going and going. Abraham, oh yeah, God promised me I'm going to have kids. Okay, let me go and take my maidservant and have kids with her. Not my wife. It keeps going and going. There's a pattern here. Y'all messed up? Good. You're ready to be used by God. Because he is so concerned with you. Here's the truth. The truth is that the myth is that he's unconcerned. The truth is that he's caring. Look at how God has wrapped you up into the details of your life. Matthew chapter 10. I love this passage of scripture. It's just so beautiful. Verses 29 through 31. He says, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. If you ain't got no hair, I'm sorry. Mine are getting fewer and fewer, less and less numbers. I'm just playing. He still knows you. They're in there. They're just not out anymore. They stop growing. That's the way I look at it. 
But and the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than the flock of sparrows. Man, think about it. If you just like, just take a second to think about it, all jokes aside, you are so valued by God that the hairs on your head are numbered. They're numbered. He takes such intimate love in the details of who you are that he numbered your hair. Man, that is just beautiful. He loves me so much that he's numbered the hairs of my head. He's unconcerned. No, quite the opposite. He loves you in such a way that he desires for you to have everything. Matthew 6.33 says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Can I help you real quick? Because people forget part of that passage of scripture. They seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. That's, anybody ever heard it quoted that way? Seek the kingdom of God, he'll give you everything you need. What did they miss? Live righteously. There is still a requirement of holiness in this world, people. Not subjected to whatever you want it to be. Live righteous. Live holy. Matter of fact, Peter said, be perfect. Strive for perfection. But he preached that with the understanding that we all fall short of the glory of God. We will all miss the mark. That's what sin actually means. I missed the mark. Imagine a big giant target and a bow and arrow, and you, you, you shoot the arrow and you miss the mark. That's what sin is. I shot for it. I missed. Problem is, most folks aren't even searching, shooting for it. Matter of fact, most people in the church aren't shooting for it. They're just, ah, you know, it is what it is. It's my journey. The pastor preaches and said, well, everybody's on their own journey, so if I'm out getting drunk tonight, that's just part of my journey. No, that's not at all what grace is for. You cheapen, you cheapen grace when you live like that. That's the bottom line. There is still a necessity for righteousness in this world today. Don't get that twisted. Don't lose that. There is still a necessity to be holy. But you have to understand that you are going to miss the mark, which is going to require repentance. Let me turn from my ways and walk towards Christ. And as I get derailed, because you will, let me turn from my ways and walk towards Christ. Paul even said, when he talked about the grace of God being a gift and free, he says, does that mean we should go on sinning? Matter of fact, his response was emphatic. Absolutely not, he said. No, because there's a necessity to live righteous. He's not unconcerned. He loves you. He desires for you to have everything that you want. So last one we're going to handle right now. Worship team, you can come and get set. So he's compassionate. He's consistent. He's caring, but sometimes he feels so far away. Here's the, the myth. The myth is that God, let me give them an opportunity to come and get set so we can minimize the movement because this is important. So the myth is this. God is unreachable. That's the myth. Psalm 10 verse 1 says, Oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Again, we look at the psalmist. He's crying out with his, from his heart. God, I need you. Where are you? Why, do you? why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Again, this is our viewpoint. This is the way we see it. See, some people come to church or come to faith and feel like an outsider they think there's some secret key to getting in that they can't get, they don't have, and they can't get into this thing called God and this relationship called God. Like there's some sort of barrier between them and God. And they see God as this 
distant creature, this distant thing. Matter of fact, if, when you, when you, if you watch some of those videos, oftentimes they'll say, oh, well, he's this God of the universe and this expanse that I don't understand and I, I can't even comprehend and, and it doesn't make any sense to me. So, but that's where he is. He's, he's out there. Can I tell you something? That's actually not true. God is not unreachable. The truth, reachable, the truth is God is close. God is very close. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 27, the Bible says, From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. Verse 27, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. There is a journey to finding God, but he is so close on that journey. We think he's so far because of the way our journey is shaped. And then the psalmist says in verse thir- in chapter 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Let me just help you understand something when it comes to the closeness of God. Part of the reason why we can't experience God as being close is because the way we see him is so distant. We've, we, 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 we refu- Part of it is, remember what I said about you project how you view God into how you view yourself. And if ever in your life, anybody's ever been close to you and has let you down, been close to you and have hurt you, been close to you and have crushed you, now that projection goes towards God. And now I'm projecting that hurt and that pain towards God. So I am actually keeping him distant. Anybody ever think about that before? You ever think about somebody who's hurt you and say, I'm just going to keep him at arm's length? I'm not going to let them hurt me anymore? Matter of fact, I'm going to build a wall around myself, and I'm going to suggest that this wall, no one can penetrate this wall because they're not going to hurt me again. The problem is, that's what we do with God. The very one who wants to be close to you, the very one who can heal you, the very one who can deliver you, the very one who loves you is the one we're keeping out. He's the one that we're building this barrier in front of us. But he said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. What does that mean? Those two words, brokenhearted and crushed, are very, very similar in this context. The word brokenhearted literally means demolished, broken in pieces. The word crushed means to literally be pounded into powder. You want to know who God's close to? God's close to them. Why is God close to them? Because they are hurting and needing him. And can I tell you something, church? That's me. My spirit's crushed. My heart is broken. I'm beat down just like anyone else. And because I'm willing to acknowledge that and because I know that to be true, God is close to me. And I never get I never get so far from him that I don't sense him and don't feel him, even if it's not the way that I want to. And even if I'm not looking and feeling the way that I want to, I know that he's there. All being brokenhearted and crushed means is I've gotten rid of pride in my life. And I recognize my need for him. I recognize my need for God. The reality is, church, 
The way we see God is so skewed. He is not unreasonable. He's compassionate. He is not unreliable. He is consistent. He is not unconcerned. He is caring. He is not unreachable. Unreachable. He is close.